When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There have been fragments of Dead Sea Scrolls that have popped up on the market uh, in the last 20 or so years. And so how many of these fragments have surfaced and were purchased, I think, since 2002? I, I've counted around 80. 80? Yeah. But you and a, and a handful of others were able to gain access to to some of these and um, mm-hmm. conduct some analysis, which resulted in a, uh, a pretty attention-grabbing conclusion, which was what? We're suspicious that probably all of them are forgeries. Yeah. Wow. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How go things today, Dan? Good, good. Uh, I've made some plans. I've booked a trip to the Museum of the Bible to see fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I hear is (laughs) going to be a great... Oh, wait. Well... Maybe that won't work out. We'll, uh, we, we, <laughs> we've got an won't. expert on to, to help us with that. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, let's introduce our guest for today. This is uh, an old friend of mine. This is Kip Davis. He is a public scholar of the Hebrew Bible with specializations in early Judaism and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thank you so much for being here, Kip. Hey, guys. It's good to see you. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm I, I'm afraid to tell you, Dan, that... Uh, that <laughs> If you're going to go see Dead Sea Scroll fragments at the Museum of the Bible, you're you're going to be disappointed. What? You might have actually been disappointed while they were still there. Um, just as part of your general disappointment with the whole experience. With the Museum um, of the, the Bible. With the whole museum, yes. yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 like, I like any show where we can start off by sort of pooping on the Green family's uh, <laughs> failed oh. attempt at a, a thing. Anyway. So a uh, little, little inside baseball here. Um, I don't know if anybody gets in trouble for this, but uh, I <laughs> went to a Bible translation conference several years ago, going on probably eight or nine years ago, uh, and I was talking with some folks, and Bible translation is significantly funded by the Greens. Mm. Uh, through uh, a variety of different organizations. And yeah. what some of the consultants were telling me was that it is um, widely known that the Greens believe, or somebody among them, um, and I'm just passing on what I was told as an outsider, uh, that uh, the idea is as soon as the Bible is translated into every language in the world, that will catalyze the second coming. Yeah. Which is one oh, of the I mean, reasons I think, that that funding I, I is, is that talked about in, talk, uh, in some book? of that is mentioned in okay. here. I mean, this Wait, is what's a the book for book. those of us who can't, for those listeners who can't see what's happening. Oh, what? uh, this is Candy Moss and, uh, Joel Baden's, uh, book on the green family, uh, uh Bible nation, the United States of Hobby Lobby, which is yeah. just, uh, the title is just, Apparently, the hobby that they're engaged in is bringing about the apocalypse. So that's a nice. It's a hobby. big part of it. It is. It's and that's I've, a fun and hobby. I've had, 
I've had other folks who also work in Bible translation tell me that one of the huge concerns is that the funding is all going to just pumping out more languages uh-huh. and they're not mm-hmm. like doing all the work that goes along with it, like literacy programs, like more research for translators so that they can ensure that their translations are better, all that kind of stuff. It's just pump out more translations, go, go, go. Um, mm-hmm. And in the hopes that uh, they will bring the second coming uh, as an even faster thief in the night. So, all right, um, <laughs> let's let, let, let's get off of the of the Hobby Lobby Green family and uh, yeah. and get into some more interesting stuff. Kip Davis, thank you for joining us. You didn't uh, give me an sure. opportunity to say get off the Hobby Lobby horse. Oh, because uh, that was okay, okay. it was right there. Our, opportunity <laughs> missed. Right I apologize. Uh, I just, I'm I'm excited. I want to talk about some uh, some scrolls. Yeah, I I know very little. I think a lot of people. The world is kind of this place where, like, everybody knows that the Dead Sea Scrolls are a thing, and then of more that, or less, uh, you know, uh, they don't know what it is, though. Like, I think there's a significant no. portion of the population who are like, "Oh yeah, Dead Sea Scrolls. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I I have no idea." So and that is a that is a step ahead, though, of my uh, my oldest son's uh, kindergarten, or I think it was his first grade teacher. Um, when I had uh, come back from from the University of Manchester, where I was doing my my PhD, my family was here in Canada, and I was going back and forth quite a bit. Um, I picked him up from school, and it was the first time I had met her, and uh, introduced myself, uh, shook her hand, you know, and she uh, says to me, she goes, "Yeah," she says, "So I really just have to ask. So, are they actually squirrels?" <laughs> I think there's a there's a like a, a children's or young adult uh book series uh That's the Dead Sea like Squirrels. That. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Awesome. All right. So happened. so the Dead Sea Squirrels, uh what we're what we're on about is uh <laughs> some in the, the Qum, Qumran had a lot of interesting uh rodents, I assume. And that's why we're talking about squirrels. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure they did. I'm sure they did. Well, so for so, those for those people like me who don't have a lot of knowledge, can you give us can we start by just giving a background on what these are, where they were found, when they were found? Just give us the 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 you know the broad swath uh of 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 what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. So um I'm not uh, Dan's and my former uh, teacher, the great late Peter W. Flint, but he would tell you that the Dead Sea Scrolls were the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. Um, In a they pleasant are pretty... South African accent as well. <laughs> yes, so. yeah, I can't do it, so I'm not even going to try. But, Nobody can uh... do South African, that's impossible. <laughs> so, um, they're pretty great though. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a set, a series, I suppose, of uh, Jewish manuscripts predominantly written in Hebrew uh, with some Aramaic and a handful in Greek that were uh, discovered in the Judean desert, which is just south and um, east of the city of Jerusalem. The vast majority of the scrolls... uh, uh, I need to say um, at the outset, people 
get confused about this. The Dead Sea Scrolls technically refer to any discoveries of manuscripts in this region, all the way from you know the uh, the the further north in places like Wadi Tzir or um, yeah, let's say Wadi Tzir <laughs> uh, down south to uh, sites like uh, Nahal Hevrat and Murabat and even Masada. Uh, scrolls from Masada you could consider part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But when most people think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, if they think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're thinking about the massive collection of manuscripts that was discovered in 11 caves that are within a one and a half kilometer radius of a site called Qumran. It's a, a site of ruins that scholars believe was occupied by um, Jewish ascetics, basically. Josephus and uh, Pliny the Younger tell us that uh, these people uh, were affiliated with the Essenes, uh, a religious sect of Judaism, who was basically out in the middle of the desert waiting for the end of the world, waiting for the last days when Yahweh would finally come in power and uh, destroy the Romans and they need to elevate. talk to the green family. Uh, yes. Right. I mean, they were the greens before the greens actually. But, <laughs> and they so. were a, um, they were a separatist group that uh, considered yeah. the priesthood that was in control of the temple to be illegitimate. And so they, they were more like the Bundys uh, in that regard. They were like, we're going <laughs> yes. to live by ourselves in the mountains. And, uh, and yeah. Yeah, very interestingly, somebody asked me the question this week um, because I did a I did a video about uh, about sacrifices uh, in the Old Testament, and uh, somebody had asked me the question about Jewish ideas regarding sacrifice in the Second Temple period and 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 moving forward. And I I had the opportunity to tell him one of one of the interesting things about the uh, writers and the collectors of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they were this, you know, they, they came out of uh, the temple establishment in Jerusalem. They were disenfranchised. But uh, their expectation was that the great eschatological temple was going to be established in the same place as the, they expected the Jerusalem temple to basically be, be uh, eliminated. Um, but in the meantime, of course, they can't perform any sacrifices, but the people who lived in Qumran, who wrote and collected the Dead Sea Scrolls, thought that they entered into worship on a regular basis into the eschatological temple with God, mm -hmm. and they worshiped alongside of the angels. Uh, we have a series of texts called the, the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifices, where they explain in some detail the procedures of what scholars tend to think uh, they, 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 uh, they undertook on a regular basis. So kind of a era. mystical stream of tradition yeah, uh, in that yeah, regard, a, that we're transcending this realm to, um, to commune with God and the angels uh, in the yeah. heavenly temple. This also helps to explain um, a lot of, they were also quite obsessed with uh, ritual purity in, uh, within this group. And, and part of the reason for that uh, was because their expectation was that they were regularly in the company of divine beings. 
Mm. Uh, so it's it's really really important to make sure that uh, that you're dressed your best. When, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when well, well, you know, companies coming over, you want to be <laughs> you want to be in you know you want the the carpet to be clean and all that sort of absolutely. Thing. But so I I guess uh, um I sorry I I got off on a bit of a tangent there. You asked about the scrolls. What's really um, for me, at least, what's what's most exciting is is the scrolls themselves, uh, the manuscripts uh, that were discovered in these eleven caves. This was back between 1947 and 1953. Uh, most of the discoveries were made by um, by by members of the Ta'amira Bedouin tribe, um, nomadic uh, sheep herders that that uh, circulate through the region. Uh, archaeologists did discover some of the manuscripts, but but uh, most of the caves ended up getting scoured by um, by by these people uh, ahead of time. Now, Kip, I wonder if you could um, clear something up for me. I have heard yeah. before, and and people hear a lot of rumors about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I have heard that um, the archaeologists who are kind of curating the the gathering of the scrolls offered to or they were paying these Bedouin groups um, by the fragments, which was a big mistake. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, oh, I, I can immediately see some problems popping up in that. Because what, it incentivized them coming. to fragment uh, things that they found. And, uh, this, is, and, this is a true story. Okay. So early on, um, the, the Bedouin were, were scouring the desert and finding these manuscripts and then bringing them uh, to an antiquities dealer by the name of uh, Kando, and uh, Iskandar Khalil Shahin is his is his his name, but everybody called him Kando. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he would he would he basically wor- uh, acted as the middleman between the scholars then and the and, and the people who would would find the scrolls. Uh, and of course, because they're just excellent at doing business right they uh they agreed on on a price for uh per fragment of material and the pieces (laughs) kept getting smaller and smaller (laughs) as they were coming in they soon settled on uh uh, they realized what was going on scholars oftentimes don't don't they're not on the ball right away with everything so it takes a few minutes sometimes but their uh, focus is different they have a different it's a little focus. bit yeah. yeah yeah uh so but they they eventually settled on a on a price per square centimeter of material mm, okay that, okay uh, that they brought in and i personally think too this is this is not something this is this is something a bit anecdotal um but it plays into some of the stuff we'll talk about later uh i, I tend to think as well importantly uh they they set a price per square centimeter of inscribed material. So I tend to think, and we have some documentation for this, that that pieces of manuscripts, pieces of, of leather or parchment, most of the, the scrolls are made of vellum, of parchment, uh, but small pieces of these that came in that didn't have any writing on them, but were part of a handle sheet or, or part of a margin of the scroll, I suspect may not have even been purchased or had been um, carelessly discarded or, or, or put away somewhere. We have uh, some documentation from Roland DeVoe, who was overseeing the project when it began. Uh, he talked about uh, setting aside some of these larger uninscribed pieces because he had 
uh, planned on doing an investigation uh, with them uh, with regards to Scarborough practices or something mm-hmm. uh, like that. But nobody knows what happened to no. these uninscribed mm-hmm. bits or where they went. And that's honestly uh, one of the problems that plagues Scrolls research today. And it's pretty consistent. Uh, one of my colleagues at the uh, University of Achter, Orstein Eusnes, has been running a project now for the last uh, four, three or four years, I think, where one of the, the purposes and goals of this project is to locate missing fragments, oh. fragments that we have uh, in, you know, many of the thousands of photographs that have been taken over the, the past 70 years, but are n- no longer in the inventory at hmm. the Israel Antiquities Authority or the Shrine mm-hmm. of the Book or any of the other uh, places where scrolls manuscripts uh, now reside. So, sorry, this is this is just just tangents galore. <laughs> no, no, that's, this is good. This is good. I, one well, thing that we haven't... Oh, sorry, keep going with what you were saying. Well, I was, I was going to say, uh, is there a, a worry that there might be some some writing that newer technology might be able to reveal on some of these, or is it more a concern for uh, just filling in all the gaps in, uh, in our understanding? Is there a hope that maybe some of these um, pieces that are not inscribed on might be able to connect inscribed pieces? Uh, what might be some of the deliverables of, of getting these uh, as many of these fragments back mm. as possible? Well, uh, the uninscribed ones. Yeah. In particular, or just any. Yeah. So, I, for my, for for my, I mean, my my real interest, by my my focus as a scholar tends to be on scribal practices, manuscript construction, um, manuscript function, something that uh, that that some of us like to call material philology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a person like me, even the uninscribed bits of a manuscript are are intensely interesting. Because they do provide us information about the scrolls as artifacts, as archaeological, as objects uh, of study. They're valuable yeah. not just for the text that they contain, but in their own right. Um, you know, the manuscripts themselves reveal a, a tremendous amount of information to us about the people who made them and the purposes behind that. Right. So this is the kind of stuff that uh, that I'm interested in, and the kind and of stuff that it's hard to write a grant uh, proposal. <laughs> for. True enough. I want to. I want to go looking and looking for and studying all these all these these, these blank totally manuscripts. Yeah, find them in the trash. <laughs> Give me money to find blank pages, please. <laughs> yes. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
So talk to us a little bit about I I sorry I'm still on the we're yeah, still figuring I still want to figure out what the heck these things are. So uh, you mentioned that some You're, of them are talking about like the practices of the people who had them at yeah. you know at the time, but there's also but that's not like so what people are mostly interested in, right? I'm I'm still I'm still trying to explain what these things are all about. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry yeah. About that, right? <laughs> Keep going. So, let's get let's get uh, back into it. So we have these this massive collection of uh, of manuscript fragments. Uh, the numbers are there, there's there's not a precise number. We're talking about tens of thousands of individual fragments. Most of them are quite small. Uh, you know, the size of a credit card, sometimes even smaller. We have a handful of complete intact manuscripts, uh, things like uh, like the Great Isaiah Scroll, which is probably the most famous of all the Dead Sea Scrolls, is a completely intact copy of Isaiah that measures um, 27 feet long. Whoa. It, uh, it, it, it's all 66 chapters from chapter one through to chapter 66 in, I believe it's 58 columns of text. Uh, is it 13, 13 sheets, uh, all stitched together. Um, but most of them don't look like that. Most of them are tiny little pieces because they've been sitting in caves for thousands of years. They've been, they've been, you know, eaten away at by, by small animals, uh, and, and they've, they've deteriorated. And as such, we're left with these it, it, these t- these fragments of all sorts of different sizes, all mixed up and 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 bunched up together. That uh, scholars have spent the better part of the last seventy years since their discovery trying to piece together and trying to figure out what's there. So, among these ten thousand fragments, uh, we figure that there are probably somewhere around six hundred individual scrolls. That belonged to um, most believe that they all belong to this group uh, that lived at this site in Qumran. Although and, the data do suggest that uh, many of these scrolls were brought in from elsewhere. Oh they were yeah, not produced definitely here, but come from yeah, all around. Exactly. So, and I I would even say there's some question about how closely related all eleven caves are to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's, and there's open questions as well about whether, you know, all the 11 caves were serving the same purpose. One, of uh, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Joan Taylor, who is out at King's college in London, mm-hmm. um, has, has forwarded, uh, some really good ideas. I think about, uh, cave one in particular, the caves are all numbered in the order in which they were discovered and cave 11 because a number of the scrolls were discovered inside of these earthen jars. Uh, she thinks that these were possibly like ancient forms of a Geniza. Uh, a Geniza okay. is a, is like a, it's like a depository for your manuscripts in a Jewish synagogue that have worn out and are no longer suitable for public usage. You can't destroy them or throw them away. They have to be carefully, respectfully uh, deposited and retired. Uh, she thinks maybe a couple of the caves could have been something like that. Hmm. Uh, the, the most uh, prominent of the caves, Cave 4, which is located literally right at the Qumran site. It's with 100 meters of the uh, the ruins themselves. Dan has been to, to Qumran, I'm sure. He's, you know, mm-hmm. been right to the Wadi Edge and seen the, uh, seen the cave for himself. 
usually when you see photos of Qumran, what you see is a little um, kind of ridge jutting out, and there's mm-hmm. a little hole right in the middle of the ridge, and that's Cave 4, and Qumran is right across that little gully from it, and so there's a yeah. lookout point where you can just exactly. sit there and, and look yeah, into and the hole in the wall. That's right, and significantly, this is a, this is a man-made cave. So... Mm. Uh, I mean, the 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 region, the area there is just honeycombed by thousands of these natural caves. This one is man-made. Uh, and within this cave is where scholars discovered, found, uh, or I should say the Bedouin found, the vast majority of material. It's, you know, over 500 of the manuscripts come from just this one cave. So the the thought generally is that this was probably almost like a library this this individual cave cave four uh there's even there's even some elements within the cave there's there's divots and and holes in the wall that suggest maybe they supported shelving units where where scrolls were were brought in and 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 deposited and Mm -hmm. and and retrieved so um yeah all that to say uh, there, we have open questions about a lot of what's what's going on here, right? We're not even sure. I think it's it's probably a good bet just based on proximity that that the caves belong together. But there's even still some open questions about that. Were these uh, what caves, about? Sorry, I, I just uh, just no. to sort of paint the picture. Were these yeah. caves big enough for a person to stand up straight in, or are they like are they little caves? That you got to kind of. So I've only been in. in? I've only been in three of them. And uh, so, yeah, like cave four, yeah, you can stand up in, in cave four and cave one, cave 11 is more difficult. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and some of these uh, other caves look like they were places that, that, you know, people just in a rush um, as the, the, the story, the story goes, the, 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 the theory is that uh, in 70, in the year 70 CE, the the Essenes were there for almost two hundred years, and then in the year seventy, uh, the Romans uh, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and then started making their way down uh, to the west uh, and south along the the shore of the Dead Sea to uh, go to Masada uh, to take care of the the last of the the rebels who were holed up there. And on the way down to Masada, they 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 just took a little pit stop at Qumran, uh, demolished and burned the place, and then went on their way. And you know the the people living at Qumran saw them coming, undoubtedly. Mm. You know from some distance, freaked out about the fact that the Roman army is bearing down upon our little settlement. Uh, so yeah, probably stashed bunches of these manuscripts away. And ran for their lives, hoping maybe they would come back uh, to collect them. And clearly, none of them made it back. Yeah. Um, and we actually have—I'll just say this one more thing uh, about that. Uh, some of the manuscripts actually have clear uh, slices right through them that were made by like a sword, just just hacking through and cutting the uh, the material itself. Hmm. 
Now you um, you mentioned the scenes being in the area for around two hundred years. Mm-hmm. What are the earliest? Uh, and and most of these manuscripts are are dated paleographically, maybe some um, through uh, carbon dating. But um, what are some of the earliest dates? And um, we put the the cutoff right around sixty eight to seventy CE. Yeah, that's when the most recent ones were made. But when when are our earliest ones dated? So the oldest ones. Uh, potentially date back to as early as 250 BCE. That's probably a little ambitious. I would mm-hmm. say safely 200. Okay. Um, and we have a, a, a handful of these ma- manuscripts. We've got copies of the book of Jeremiah, the book of Samuel, the book of Exodus uh, that all date, date back uh, this early. I think maybe even a, a, a copy of the book of Enoch. Um, I have to double check that. Um, so, and here's the significance or, or maybe not the significance, but one of the first big significances of this discovery, uh, was that between 200 to 300 of these manuscripts are copies of books that are in our old testaments. And, uh, within this collection, Every, there's there's at least a fragment of every single uh, book that appears in the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther. Uh, technically, also the book of uh, Nehemiah, but scholars assume it was there because as uh, Nehemiah was collected along with Ezra, and we have Ezra there, so scholars think possibly also, probably also Nehemiah. And the other reason this is significant is because prior to this discovery in 1947, uh, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we had of the Old Testament came from uh, medieval codices, the Leningrad Mm -hmm. Codex, the Aleppo Codex, which date to like the 10th century, 9th, 9th, 10th century. uh, Yeah, right around 900, 850, 900. Now, were there, did we have fragments of other things? Because Aleppo used to be complete, and now it's it's um, pretty fragmentary in the Pentateuch. And then the Leningrad Codex is the is the oldest complete manuscript of the entire Hebrew Bible. Is there anything between the Dead Sea Scrolls and Aleppo that is just fragmentary? Just a a handful. No, there's a couple of things. Like there's uh, most prominently the uh, the Nash Papyrus. Mm-hmm. Is a uh, is a papyrus sheet. Uh, I, no one can see my hands, or only half of you can see. My <laughs> <laughs> it's about uh, ten centimeters by twenty centimeters. It uh-huh. it dates to um, a, probably a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty BCE, and it's a uh, it's a collection of the Ten Commandments, basically, with yeah. some interesting variation in it. But this was like this was importantly not a copy of a biblical book quote unquote this was just a a single sheet of like the ten commandments so is that a biblical text i'm not even sure right so uh so the exciting thing about this was that uh really the discovery of the dead sea scrolls pushed textual criticism of the hebrew bible back in one discovery like a thousand years yeah and within the scrolls too we have discovered multiple copies of Mm -hmm. individual biblical books. There's fragments from uh, 22 individual manuscripts which contained parts of the book of Isaiah. There's 30, 
I think it's 32 copies of manuscripts that contain, you know, parts of Deuteronomy, Mm -hmm. 37 that contain parts of Psalms. So they had, uh, they had clearly a strong interest in the Bible um, well, and you mentioned Enoch earlier. I, if I recall, there were what fourteen different manuscripts of Enoch. Yeah, I yeah. think I think Enoch was the most, other than Genesis, Psalms, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it raises all sorts of interesting questions. Uh, just not. Uh, I mean, right away about the about the text of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the text of the individual books, but also about um, ideas regarding uh, biblical authority or mm-hmm. scripture, the development of canon, um, all all of this stuff is 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 wrapped up in there, and and, uh, and the inviolability of the text because you have yes. these multiple manuscripts. People are handling multiple different manuscripts that have significant differences between That's them. That's really and they the seem, wild. They thing. seem to be okay with this totally. Because and I'm sure you've talked about this before. Um, the book of Jeremiah famously uh, differs between the, the, the Greek translation of the book of Jeremiah in the Septuagint and uh, the, the Hebrew version that survives in the Masoretic text in the Leningrad Codex and the Olympic So that's Codex. the considered the authoritative uh, yeah. version of the Hebrew Bible. Your, your translations are going to primarily be based off the Leningrad Codex, which is part of the Masoretic tradition. Yeah. Um so that one is that that one is 13% larger mm. uh longer than than the Septuagint version which is substantial when you're talking about I've actually done the word count I don't remember it offhand but it's about 55,000 words. Yeah. Wow. Uh you know it it <laughs> it's it's a substantial difference and then of course uh, the the Greek text, the Septuagint version, is is also in a dramatically different arrangement. And when you do a careful comparison between the two versions, the Masoretic version that survives in the Hebrew and the Septuagint version that survives in the Greek, you can see very obvious uh, theological programs at work in terms of updating and changing uh, and altering the material. Yeah. Uh, so, and the amazing thing about this is that yes, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are six copies of the book of Jeremiah and, uh, two of those follow, uh, the text and the arrangement of the Septuagint in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, one, one of the things, um, I, I actually ran into, uh, ran into a pastor once while I was still an MA student who asked me. Um, when he found out that I worked on, on, uh, I, I was doing work in biblical studies, he, he asked me, he goes, so tell me something. He says, I can't figure this out. How is it the Greek translators of Jeremiah managed to get it so wrong? <laughs> you know, and I'm, <laughs> so I, it it's just that's that's a that's a common thought it's a common idea yeah. that uh you know not even the not just the text is authoritative or inspired or inerrant but you have to have like the right version and everybody <laughs> just sort of picks their favorite right and we have we have a lot of differences um even in 
the arrangement in Samuel and Kings as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think some of the most significant differences are are in um, some of the witnesses to Samuel in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which suggest yeah. quite a bit of textual fluidity, but tolerated textual fluidity. They um, they didn't seem just, to have a, an issue the way. Uh, that no, we do it just today. doesn't seem to be a, a question that uh, that was raised on a regular yeah. basis. And well, we have you- other like. No, go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say, can you talk a little bit about some of the differences? Like, what kinds of differences are we talking about? Like, what are the... Talk to me about some of the the most significant uh, things that, that that surprise you about, you know... First of all, as well, you're talking about differences between scro- scrolls from that era, and then now differences between that and what we're used to reading in our hmm. translations or, or whatever. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, yeah. So I, I mean, I think in terms of, of specific examples, probably the most, the most prominent one, uh, would be in one of the, uh, one of the copies of, uh, Samuel. Uh, I believe it's in first, first Samuel chapter 11. There is a large expansion in, uh, in the manuscript found one of the manuscripts found at Qumran in the story of, uh, of Nahash um the king it's the it's the ammonites isn't it dan king of the ammonites yeah yeah where we we've got this weird story where <laughs> where something has happened and suddenly a demand is being made um, yes something has happened uh the king of the ammonites nachash has showed up at yavish gilead uh and and basically threatening the city uh and th- threatening to to put out the eye of of every man in the city. And, and it is, it's a bit of a jarring interruption into, uh, into the narrative there. Um, and prior to the discovery of this manuscript, I believe it's for Q Samuel a, there was no information from any of the other, uh, manuscripts nor from the Septuagint about, about what's going on here. And lo and behold, we find, uh, this text, which has, literally an entire paragraph of material of explanatory um information about uh you know what was going on and uh do you have the text there dan i'm i'm pulling it up right now yeah so i'm looking Uh, at um if if uh, anybody would like to see you you can find english translations of the biblical and the non-biblical um Dead Sea Scrolls. There's also uh, a book called the Biblical Qumran Scrolls: Transcriptions and Textual Variants. With where, if you're really interested in this kind of stuff, <laughs> this presents the Hebrew text, and then there's a critical apparatus that presents all of the uh, of the differences between uh, the text and uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch and the uh, Septuagint and the Masoretic text and all that kind of stuff. Oh, here it is. All right, so it's it's uh, it's First Samuel. Uh, chapter 10, verse 27. I'll, I'll just read. This is the NRSV. Um, I'll start here in uh, in verse 26. It says, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went warriors whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. And then the text goes on to say, about a month later, Nachash the Ammonite went up and besieged Yavish Gilead and all the men of Yavish said to Nachash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nachash, the Ammonite said to them on this condition, I'll make the treaty with you, namely that I gouge out everyone's right eye. 
and thus put to disgrace upon all of Israel. And you're kind of looking at that and going, wow, this guy is triggered. Yeah, that's like, that's extreme. That's, yeah, right. That's, that's not a good deal. He's not making no. a good deal. <laughs> so here in uh, in four Q fifty one, we have this. the The text uh, doesn't break like it like it did in in uh, in the the translation I read. It goes on to say pr- prior to the introduction of uh, of Nachash the Ammonite, it says. Now Nachash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye, Nachash, the king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Yavish Gilead. So, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole chunk of... Uh, of new information in there that uh that nobody nobody had seen um in hundreds maybe thousand years or more uh before the discovery of the dead sea scrolls we had some hints about this uh, because i think i think josephus relates this story i i i can't recall for sure i'd have to go back and look so that's that's maybe one of the most prominent examples but i'll i'll uh I'll, i'll talk about one that i i quite uh, like and it's not an obvious one, um, but one of m- my favorite uh, things about the Dead Sea Scrolls is in how they inform us about the development of the texts of the Hebrew Bible, about the development of of Scripture, and um, Christian apologists are very fond of uh, pointing to the Dead Sea Scrolls and specifically pointing to copies of the book of Daniel that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls as, you know, proof of the fact that this is a book that must have been written by Daniel himself living in Babylon in the 6th century because, you know, traditional theories. Is this something you guys have talked about before? Yeah, we, talk, we, yeah. we did a show about the book of Daniel. Uh, yeah, okay. But, but it's, you know, it, it's never hurt to, hurts to give a refresher. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, sort of thing. So, so like, just very briefly, um, it, scholars are uniformly convinced uh, that the book of Daniel uh, was not completed until well into the second century yeah. uh, after the, uh, the Hasmonean revolt and that the prophecies in the Hebrew portion, uh, beginning in uh, in chapter eight through to twelve, uh, were all written after the fact and you know set in the in the mouth of Daniel uh, right. as if they were predictions of of the future. This is known. So you know the the date of the book of Daniel tends to be that, or at least the the these parts of the book of Daniel and the completion of the book of Daniel tend to be around the one sixties. So, um, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are several copies of manuscripts containing the book of Daniel. And many Christian apologists pointed to this right away and were very excited about the fact that these manuscripts were there because they concluded it could not, it it was just not possible that the book of Daniel could be so widely circulated and so popular in such a short 
period of time from the time of its composition to the time of its circulation. Now, I, I'm, I'm not going to make any judgments about the quality of that argument, <laughs> um, but this, this, is how, uh, this is how often uh, Christian apologists will tend to talk about the book of Daniel. But you need to, when you do uh, some work, when you look into what's actually there from the book of Daniel and the Dead Sea Scrolls, this paints a fascinating picture. Because yes, we have eight copies of individual Daniel manuscripts in the collection. And yes, two of these copies look like they're all fragmentary, but in the in terms of how scholars work and the way that we can reconstruct the material, we're pretty convinced that two of them did contain the complete book. Um, now, those manuscripts are dated uh, to, at best, the early first century CE, or probably closer to the middle of the first century CE. So right away, these manuscripts are like up to 200 years already removed from the completion of the book of Daniel. Hmm. What's really fascinating is the rest of the material, I think, because the rest of the manuscripts, when you attempt to reconstruct them, you end up with uh, manuscripts that only contain portions of the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel's funny because half of it's written in Aramaic and the other half is written in Hebrew. And in terms of their, their content, they tend, they're quite different. You know, the Hebrew uh, text of Daniel are these, these wild apocalyptic visions. The Aramaic texts are these, are these super fun stories about these, these uh, clever, uh, uh, Jewish exiles living in Babylon and always getting the better of that that goofy uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> you know, or or uh, or or old the Persian. man Nebuchadnezzar. Oh yeah, always getting. <laughs> so anyway, anyways, um, so we we have these 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 two parts, and fascinatingly, what we find is a couple of these manuscripts look like they were just copies of. Aramaic tales. Some of these manuscripts look like they were just copies of a Hebrew vision or maybe two or three of these Hebrew visions in the final part. So mm -hmm. as a scholar of the scrolls and somebody who, who works with the material and is interested in questions of development and, uh, and, and authority and such, I look at that and I go, this is so obvious. I mean, we have, you know, in the first century BC, in, you know, maybe the early second century BC, we have physical examples of what the book of Daniel looked like before it became our biblical book of Daniel. We have examples of it in the pieces mm -hmm. that it was probably circulated as for some time. And in addition to that, we also have other manuscripts which feature this figure, Daniel, written in Aramaic uh, as part of these, these tales of him serving in the Babylonian court, uh, but do not appear in our Bibles. It's and wild. That's, that's fascinating. That would be to use the documentary hypothesis as kind of an analogy. It would be like stumbling across J 
while it right. was circulating independently, and D, while it was circulating independently, and then something else that may have been LMNO or Q that never got worked into the Pentateuch. It's um, and and of course because everything is so fragmentary, we can't know for sure exactly what the full manuscripts yeah. look like. But at least the data point in that direction that it, that it looks like we may have pieces of pre-Daniel traditions floating around yeah. preserved at Qumran. Wow, that's incredible. Maybe one of the best known of these unknown Aramaic tales is a is a manuscript called the Prayer of Nabonidus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a couple of fragments. And it's, it's weird because it's written in the first person uh, and it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking about what a great guy he is and, and how amazing he is. And look at this beautiful city that I've built. There's nobody like me on earth. And then suddenly God speaks to him and says, you know, you're a prideful asshole. Sorry, can I say that? On, on the <laughs> yeah, we'll allow it. There's one time. Okay. Oh, <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, you know, I am, you know, I'm going to put you in your place. Uh, I'm going to reduce you to a beast and you're going to go wander out in the fields for seven years. Uh, until you learn your lesson. And of course this happens. Um, very interestingly, this, there's this, a couple of fragments of this manuscript that scholars identify as the prayer of Nabonidus, where the text of the story looks really similar to this, uh, but with some interesting differences. It's not Nebuchadnezzar speaking in the first person. It's the, uh, the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus. Mm-hmm. speaking in the first person. And he's speaking about uh, how he was afflicted with an illness for seven years, an illness so bad that he ended up having to be removed from the city of Babylon. He couldn't even be in Babylon anymore. And then he tells us in this personal account of his that a uh, an anonymous uh, Jewish magician uh, came and helped him and healed him and praised God, the only God, the God of the Jews uh, forever. So, you know, scholars look at something like that and they say, hmm, sure looks an <laughs> awful lot like this story of Nebuchadnezzar, except, you know, maybe somebody decided to update the story and and swap out the, the wildly unpopular uh, Nabonidus and largely, you know, unknown by this time probably Nabonidus for you know a famous guy like uh, (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar so interesting now one of I I just wanted to bring up my favorite variant read from uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls yes please a lot of my research is on conceptualizations of deity and particularly the early history of Adonai the God of Israel and their distinction from El uh, Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. Very, very famously, we have uh, 4Q Deuteronomy J, one of the fa- fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls that uh, was discovered. That's only a few words, but we can tell it is definitely Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. There's nothing else it could be. And in the Masoretic text, if you pull out many Bibles today, these days there are a lot that are correcting this, but uh, it talks about how the Most High um, separated the peoples, divided up the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel. And then you go look in the Septuagint, it says, according to the number of the angels of God. And uh, this is a head scratcher, but some scholars were like, you know, the Septuagint translators like to take gods or sons of God and render it angels of God. So maybe 
what Deuteronomy 32.8 originally said was according to the number of the sons of God. So that was a hypothesis. And then we discovered 4Q Deuteronomy J, which reads precisely that, according to the number of the sons of God, um, which helps us make a lot of connections between the mythos of, of this time period and some earlier literature, particularly in the Ugaritic texts. But, uh, but elsewhere in Deuteronomy 32, we've also got 4Q Deuteronomy Q, which is uh, verse 43. There's this statement uh, about uh, is sing heavens or something like that. I'll have vengeance on, on my people. And mm-hmm. the Septuagint actually is, is very, has a very long verse where it kind of doubles up about saying, uh, you know, strengthen the angels of God and, uh, and worship him, all you sons of God. And then we found uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, the reading, uh, worship him, all you gods, exactly what we find in Psalm 97 7, That's probably right, yeah. the source for the composition of Psalm 97 7. But it seems like the Septuagint probably had two variant readings of this text and was like, let's keep them both. And that's what ended (laughs) up in in the Greek translation. And then the Masoretic text was uncomfortable with uh, with whatever reading they had or someone before them changed it. And we get this kind of um, milk toasty passage, but we can restore what was most likely original where God is is telling the gods to, um, or somebody is telling the gods to worship the God of Israel. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I think just just fascinating. It's and it's it's so amazing amaz- that we have those things, and it makes you wonder what what was eaten What's, by a mouse or what was wow. what so was much, right? destroyed in the process of excavation or what just yep. um, immediately turned to dust when it was exposed to the air or something like that. There's or as yeah, Bedouins were ripping up uh, documents yeah. into smaller or fragments. you know there's a there's a famous there is a famous uh black and white photograph that was snapped sometime in the in the 40s or the 50s of uh uh g lancaster harding who was the uh director of the palestinian authority the antiquities authority at the time that the dead sea scrolls were discovered and he is he is pouring over some manuscript fragments, uh, studying them very intently. And he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth <laughs> with, with the, uh, the ash on it, like, uh, an inch and a half long, like it's barely <laughs> holding on there. It's just about to drop and incinerate the whole thing. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's wild. You know, I was gonna say one other thing about those two manuscripts. Down one of them, one of the things that that I particularly like about them, and this is because I'm I'm like one of these uh, weird uh, manuscript scribal practices guy. Uh, these two copies of the Book of Deuteronomy are not copies of the Book of Deuteronomy. They're okay. smaller manuscripts. They are. So 4Q Deuteronomy J, uh, the first one, contains text from, see if I can get this right. It's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then Exodus chapter 12, and then the whole Song of Moses. And that's it, right? And then uh, the other one, uh, 4Q Deuteronomy Q, is Mm -hmm. just the song of Moses, which is, which is Deuteronomy 32. So these, I actually, you know, I, I'm getting out of the, and I'm trying to get people out of the habit of even calling these um, manuscripts of Deuteronomy because they're not, they are manuscripts of, in the one case, this 
the single poem, the single poetical composition that ended up getting plugged into the book of Deuteronomy, or maybe was the source of what became the book of Deuteronomy over time, right. but it existed on its own, right? Uh, at this oh, so, time. So you're not, you're not saying that this was like the reader's digest version of Deuteronomy. You're no. saying that this predated Deuteronomy and was included Perhaps. into Deuteronomy, maybe. Perhaps. I mean, the theories are, <laughs> the theories, the, you know, there, there's a couple of theories about how this happened. Um, I, I tend to think that, that Deuteronomy 32 was probably the original core um, mm -hmm. and the rest developed around it. Um, and these manuscripts are, you know, they're, uh, the first one is dates to, uh, I think 50, uh, BCE. And the other one is, is a little bit older. It's closer to about a hundred BCE. Okay. But if you think about that, this is, this is close to the time of, so this is the time of the Hasmoneans. Mm -hmm. This is the time of Herod when you still have this very obviously uh, polytheistic sort of theology yeah. within the text themselves. Um, I, now, one of the reasons uh, for that, this is, uh, this is an idea uh, that, that has been forwarded by Benjamin Zemer, and I quite like this. Um, so I've, I've adopted it, and I'm telling everyone. So how, how is it that these manuscripts of Deuteronomy survived that long in this form and where did the alternative reading that appears in the Masoretic text of Deuteronomy 32 verses eight to nine come from? Yeah. Uh, the way he answers this question is he says, well, uh, one of the things that we see in, not just in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is certainly part of what we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I would say Jewish uh, scribal practice uh, uh, by and large, uh, on the whole, you see a tendency towards harmonization. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is, is, you know, disparate parts of the text and the theology. There's this concentrated effort to try and get everything, um, to match and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and to, uh, align, uh, with one another. This is why, uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch has taken, you know, chunks from the book of Numbers and inserted them in, in the book of Deuteronomy and vice versa to make sure where we have these parallel stories that they're all, you know, the same. We can't yeah. have the same these. thing happens in the New Testament where um, you'll have a reading from Matthew that gets in, or a reading from Mark that gets inserted into Matthew so that Jesus's story is is the same across the two books. Yeah, exactly. So we tend to think, I tend to think this was probably also happening in the book of Deuteronomy. And I think it's it's probably happening pretty early. Hmm. Um, so uh, the way Benjamin Zemer puts it, he, he, he puts it like this. Um, we know the reading from, from the Masoretic text is instead of um, uh, God giving uh, Yahweh his inheritance uh, as one of the sons of the gods, uh, as one of the sons of El, um, he's, he's giving him he's giving an inheritance according to the number of the sons of Israel. We know from Genesis chapter 49 that uh, there were 70 people who, uh, who came to Egypt uh, in Jacob's family, the sons of Israel, right? We also know from Genesis chapter 10 that there were 70 nations right. in that genealogy. So the thought is that at the time when you know, the book of Deuteronomy was being put together. 
with these other texts, like from the Torah, that this created a bit of a problem and this was one way that they corrected this. Ah, okay. You know, yes, we're, we're, we're flattening some of this polytheism, but at the same time, we're providing this further explanation and this coherence that we see already in places like Genesis chapter 49 and, yeah. and Genesis chapter 10. Um, so the reason why, and, and the reason why, uh, it's interesting that these manuscripts are small manuscripts. Um, this is part of how a reading like this survives because these are not part of the book of Deuteronomy because these are not part of a larger Torah as these people understand it, as they're reading it, they don't even think. To, to make this kind of a correction because there's yeah. there's not really any any need to well it's not being brought together into a single corpus with this other text exactly. which the juxtaposition is not saying hey we need to we need to make these agree so I want to make sure we have an opportunity to talk about this because you were instrumental in some recent research that has taken place uh, relative to the Dead Sea Scrolls and I remember over a decade ago, us talking and you talking about not a lot of research into the materiality of the scrolls and you being very interested in understanding the production of the scrolls and, and their materiality. And, um, and I actually you, think that might have been one of our one of our first conversations. Oh, really? Ever. I oh, think at so. Trinity Western. Yeah, for, yeah. For those who I don't know if we said it yet, but I, when I was at Trinity Western University for my second master's thesis in lovely Langley, uh, British Columbia, Kip was there. Was it a postdoc or were you um, on the faculty? You had done I think your, I was on a I think I was on a postdoc. Postdoc at, at, at yeah. Trinity Western teaching some classes yeah. and stuff. And uh and we became fast friends. Um yeah. so there have been fragments of Dead Sea Scrolls that have popped up on the market uh in the last twenty or so years. And they're yeah, being I've bought got one up. here at my house. <laughs> mm. They're um they're being bought up by like the Greens and um by universities, particularly Christian oriented universities. I think Azusa Pacific is one of the main mm-hmm. ones, but there are a few different ones. Southwestern and these, Baptist. Southwestern Baptist, okay. Mm-hmm. And and one of my favorite variants was a part of one of these fragments from Deuteronomy twenty seven, where um we have the Gerizim reading. Oh yeah, uh, so, right. <laughs> so instead of uh, right. Instead of uh, Moses saying that you're going to shout these things from um, Ebal, it actually says Gerizim, which would be a variant reading that supports the antiquity of the Samaritan tradition. Um, and so how many of these fragments were have um, surfaced and were purchased, so, I think, since 2002? I, I've counted around 80. 80? Yeah. Oh my gosh! I I yeah, think I I've only read about <laughs> less than a dozen of them, but there have been so. And and the the inventories are not as as this goes. When mm-hmm. one of the difficult things is, so much of our information comes from collectors who have purchased these things and have everything to lose. Yeah. Um. In terms of their their. Authenticity and then By subjecting them uh, to analysis. Yeah. And then <laughs> dealers and uh, uh, antiquities uh, sellers mm-hmm. who aren't all that cooperative either. <laughs> uh, so the numbers 
are not especially consistent. But you and a, and a handful of others uh, were able to gain access to to some of these and um, mm-hmm. conduct some analysis, which resulted in a, uh, a pretty attention-grabbing conclusion, which was what? Uh, we're suspicious that probably all of them are forgeries. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we're, we're confident, we're, we're confident that a huge number of them are forgeries mm-hmm. and scientific, uh, forensic testing has been conducted on nine, I think it's nine fragments from the Scoyan collection on all 16 fragments from the museum of the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, and has, uh, demonstrated with a high degree of confidence that yes, they are in fact, uh, they were in fact produced in, uh, modern times. So, and this was, so, the, and this wasn't something that, uh, this was part of my, my second postdoc was in, in Norway. And I went there, uh, one of the things I was supposed to be working on was the publication of Martin Skoyan's, uh, fragments and artifacts, uh, in his private collection from mm. Qumran. And it was in the course of doing that work that uh, I and a few of my colleagues started to get very suspicious about these fragments that we were working on. And then at around the same time, I was also asked by Emmanuel Tove to help him with uh, the publication of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls fragments belonging to Hobby Lobby, to the Green family and the Museum of the Bible. So... Now you've In just held up. Th- sorry, you've just held up two oh, books to sorry, your camera. Guys. Give us the the titles of those books, just so that we. So know. this is this is a book you can't buy anymore because it was discontinued by Brill. <laughs> 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 uh, so this is this is uh, Dead Sea Scrolls fragments in the museum collection. Uh, okay. So this is the edition the edition of forgeries uh, uh, belonging to the museum of Bi- of the Bible, and because they're forgeries, that's why you can't buy it anymore. Yeah, maybe it's worth something. I don't know. Uh, the, maybe it's uh, worth as the, much of those as those uh, scroll fragments. Oh, that'd be something. The other one, uh, gleanings from the caves, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls artifacts from the Scoyan collection, is published by TNT Clark. Um, is uh, and it's not just uh, it's not just Dead Sea Scrolls fragments. There's uh, a couple of other. Uh, items of interest in here as well there's a there's like a a piece of a sandal there's um um scoyan's got a uh, a jar uh one of the the jars from Qumran. he's got like a, an inkwell and a and a little bronze altar um so it's it's also artifacts um but uh so that was published by TNT Clark and that one I I do believe you you still can buy because mm. uh, by the time we we got around to getting the book published, we had already settled on nine of his thirty-two fragments that we were pretty confident were forgeries. And when we ran the forensic testing on them, they all turned out to very probably be forgeries. And I'm couching yeah. my language here because, as my friend, uh, the great physicist who helped us out uh, in Berlin, Irada Bin always tells me we can't prove anything. So yeah. there you go. Uh, yeah, they're they're fakes. But so what are- you're telling me is that I shouldn't let you anywhere near my fragment. No, I, I, this is this is the great lesson, right? Uh, yeah. And even I have to say, uh, this was a, 
I'm a pretty naive person, I think, in, in many <laughs> respects. And and uh, when a few of us started to have suspicions about Skoyan's fragments, the first thing we did, uh, one of my colleagues, Orstein Yusnest, uh, started putting just data together. Uh, and he compiled a 30-page memo uh, of just things about the fragments that seemed odd, suspicious, peculiar, raised questions that, that we couldn't answer, uh, and, you know, indicated that maybe these are fakes. And he sent that memo to Mr. Skoyan, and uh, to his credit, Skoyan basically gave us the freedom to uh, do the work necessary uh, to make this determination. Um, now, with some caveats, uh, he told us at the outset that he he would only uh, allow us to test those fragments which we were most most concerned about, the ones we had the highest suspicions on. So we had to sort of narrow the list down. Mm. Um, so it ended up being nine. Uh, I I think I have gone on record as saying I think there's probably more in the Skoyan collection. But as you can imagine, mm. once we we demonstrated that nine of his fragments were forgeries, he wasn't about to say, oh yeah, go test the rest of them. <laughs> go, go after yeah. him. Come on, man. <laughs> so one of the nice things about working with the Museum of the Bible was that once somebody convinced them, and there was a, a group of people working uh, in the curatorial department at the time, uh, Christian Askelon, uh, Josephine Drew, in particular, were instrumental in convincing the Museum of the Bible that they needed to do this. Mm -hmm. So uh, the nice thing about working for the Museum of the Bible was they had lots of money. Uh And these tests are really expensive. So um, they had the wherewithal to undertake uh, the expense. and, uh, And I spent another you know, two years after I had had worked on and and helped publish the book of the fragments, <laughs> I then spent the next two years working on you know demonstrating that they were all forgeries, which was a weird. <laughs> sort of that's situation. that's good for a second book right there. That's a great sequel. <laughs> yeah, right. Which it's uh, it's kind of funny. Like if you see Dead Sea Scrolls for sale in the uh, New York Times, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe give a second thought to that. However, when a, the Dead Sea Scrolls time. were originally found, a, yeah, back in the 40s, they did that. They put yeah. an ad in the New York Times. Wall, Wall Street um, Journal. Wall, was it Wall Street Journal? Okay. Wall Street Journal, oh. yeah. Yeah. So there's an interesting story about that. Actually, you know uh, what? I'm sorry. I am going to cut you off. We have gotten an overtime, uh, and I want that interesting story, but... I'm going to be very mean to our listeners and say that if you want to hear this interesting story, uh, you're going to have to become a patron of the show and go and listen to our after party where Kip will join us and tell us this fascinating story. But until then, Kip Davis, thank you so much for joining us yeah, on the absolutely. show. Uh, would you tell our, our our friends at home how they can find your work, where they can, where they can find uh, more of you out there in the universe? Absolutely. So um, I have a YouTube channel uh, where I'm I'm publishing most of my content these days. It's just my name, Kip Davis. I make videos uh, about the Bible, 
about the the critical study of the Bible. I do a lot of work countering uh, ridiculous and pseudoscientific claims about the Bible, very much like Dan, but not as as frequently as Dan. And, <laughs> and my material tends to get into the weeds a little bit. Um, so, and then I also have uh, I have a course, uh, an online course uh, called Israelite Religions: Facts on the Ground and Propaganda in the Bible that you can find on MVP Courses, where I basically go through. It's a thirteen hour course, it's 18 lectures, uh, where I go through and try to uncover what the religions of ancient Israel actually really looked like, and then how those ideas developed into the text that we have in our Hebrew Bible. And uh, I think I think that's it. I think so. Excellent. Well, cool. thank you so much for joining us. We've uh, It's been a treat having you. If you, friends at home, would like to hear the rest of the story uh, that Kip's going to tell us and and more fun uh, chat, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash data over dogma. Um, if you join at the $10 a month level, you will be able to, to, to hear the after party uh, that we've been talking about. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us. Uh, the email address is contact at data over dogmapod.com. And... We'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.